Okay, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. And we started last week on verse 11 here in the model prayer. This simple phrase, give us this day our daily bread. Uh, we said it's perhaps the simplest of all the entreaties. And given our society and culture, we might not give much thought to this. Uh, it seems rather irrelevant because when's the last time any of us prayed, Lord, please provide a meal for me. Um, and I mentioned last week, for those of you, the many of you who were not here, that uh, we live in a country with incredible amounts of food. Uh, I won't go through all the statistics that I gave last week, but let me just mention that uh, here in the United States, every year we produce the equivalent of 82 pounds of beef per person. We produce 133 pounds of chicken per person. Uh, and we produce, after we export all that we export and everything else, we still have over one ton of grain for every single American. Um, so we have food beyond our ability to conceive. So to say, give us this day our daily bread feels a little remote. Um, and I admitted that until I studied this, this didn't seem all that important to me as a uh, major prayer request. Uh, but it's the basic need of man. This refers to all of man's basic needs. It's a broad term. It's a prayer for our physical needs to be supplied. And so as we look at this entreaty, there are five areas. There's the provision there's the provider, there's the petition, there's the people, and there's the period of time. And we began, we looked first of all last week at the provision, which it says it's bread. It's, but it's not just talking about bread in terms of a loaf of bread. It's talking about the provision of our physical needs. Uh, God is to begin by providing our physical needs because without doing that, we will die. Uh, and we said bread is a term which represents all of that physical area. Martin Luther taught that everything necessary for the preservation of this life is bread and food, a healthy body. He even included good weather, house, home, wife, children, good government, and peace. He included all kinds of things. Uh, he saw all of the elements of life that support our physical existence as necessities. Uh, but bread does not include the luxuries of life. Uh, what he chooses to give us by way of luxury is entirely by his grace, but he promises to give us the necessities. What Jesus is saying here isn't self-seeking. You, know, you know, it's not give me more, 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 and more. Uh, it's simply saying, Lord, give me what I need. Uh, the essence of the prayer is really an affirmation that all of our provision comes from God. It's saying, Lord, I want to let you know that I realize that you are the source of my life, my food, my shelter, my clothing. It's that constant affirmation. So then I may not have to pray, Lord, I don't have any food for my family and I don't know where it's going to come from, but please give me something to eat. But I can and should always pray, Lord, everything I have and all that I share with others comes from your good and gracious hand. And then that brings us to the second thought. Uh, the first was provision. The second is provider, who is God. 
we often fail to recognize that everything we have, uh, including the ability to work hard, to, to the, even the desire and the drive to provide for our family, it all comes from God. It's not just some inner thing that we motivated on our own. Uh, so we need to pray that way. We need to thank him that he has given us food to eat and clothes to wear and shelter over our head and a bed to rest in and the physical strength to honor the Lord with our work. Uh, God cares about the little things, the things that we never think about. He's involved in every detail. He, he knows and controls and orders every detail of everything in this world for us. Uh, and so my daily bread, the necessities of physical life are all from God. And so part of my prayer should always be, give us this day our daily bread. We recognize you, Father, as the giver of all physical necessity. Then we come to the petition, and it's expressed in the verb give. Uh, this is the heart of the petition because it recognizes our need. Even though God may have already provided it, we ask him for it in recognition of his past and present provision, as well as trust for his future provision. What are we asking for? He says our daily bread. So it's an invitation to come to God with requests that even others may consider to be small. Uh, one of the precious realities of our Christian life is that God cares for the simple, ordinary, day-to-day -day things of life. And notice that God wants us to build a mutuality between us and our brothers and sisters in Christ through this prayer. He commands us to pray, what? Give us, not give me. It's give us. Every time we pray this prayer from our heart, we are affirming our solidarity with our fellow believers. We are making an implicit commitment to help provide bread for our fellow believers. Uh, the prayer is a petition that stretches us. It broadens out our thinking to include others. We not only depend on God for our practical provision, but we also commit ourselves to be a part of God's answer for others in need. And then that brings us to where we stopped last week, which is to the next point, which is the people. The people. Turn with me as we begin this to Psalm 37. Psalm 37. And I want to explain what I hope will be helpful to you in understanding how God desires to meet your physical needs. Now, as I said, I don't believe God is bound to meet the physical needs of everyone. Give us this day our daily bread is not, not carte blanche to pray for everything on Amazon's website. Uh, if you listen to the health and wealth word of faith false teachers, they will tell you that you have the right to demand such from God. Uh, they will use verses such as Psalm 37, 4, which says, delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart, <coughs> to mean that if you will just trust the Lord, he will give you everything you ever desire, including fancy cars, fancy clothes, fancy homes. But I believe there are some conditions, and we'll see this as we look at this point. God is not bound to meet everyone's physical needs. So let's begin. Let's look at Psalm 37, beginning at verse 3. It says, trust in the Lord and do good. Now that simple statement is profound because it encompasses the significance of salvation. Salvation is believing God resulting in good works, right? 
Uh, remember what James said? Faith without works is what? Dead. <clears throat> so simply saying, trust in the Lord and do good, is just like summing up the doctrine of salvation. Believing, trusting, and the result of that true faith is good works. And the rest of verse 3 continues that thought. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. In other words, as you go through the process of daily life, be one who grows a life of faithfulness to God. And then in verse 4, he says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. The idea here is to wrap, uh, is to spend your life and time wrapped up in that which pleases the Lord, obeying the Lord, praising the Lord, honoring the Lord in everything. And then he will give you the desires of your heart. Why? Because the things you will desire will be the things that he desires for you. Uh, you will desire holiness. <coughs> you will desire righteousness. <clears throat> you will desire opportunities to serve him. And he will give you all of those things. Now, if he chooses, he may also give you physical blessings. He may not bless you with abundance, but he will meet your needs. We'll see that a little further on in the chapter. And then verse 5 says, Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he will do it. This is an example of Hebrew parallelism. In Hebrew poetry, it is very common for the writer to write one statement and then to follow it up with another statement, which is just another way of saying the same thing, but in different words. Verse 5 is parallel to verse 4. Delighting yourself in the Lord in verse 4 is the same thing as committing and trusting in the Lord in verse 5. And thus, giving you the desires of your heart in verse 4 is parallel to he will do it in verse 5. But again, <coughs> it's not necessarily physical blessings. Now notice the contrast that starts in verse 7. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. In other words, just trust the Lord and wait for him to do what he wants to do. And while you're doing that, do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Suddenly, David introduces a contrast between those who trust in the Lord and wait on him with those who are evil and wicked. Verse 8, here he explains the danger of fretting. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. You see, fretting leads to becoming just like those you're fretting about. And the beginning of verse 9 says, for evildoers will be cut off. But in contrast, but those who wait for the Lord, they will inherit the land. Now you say, aha, finally, I promise that God's going to give us some real estate. Uh, yes, but it doesn't mean that it's coming in this lifetime. Uh, remember the context. At the time David wrote this, uh, he was referring to Israel and saying that those who trusted, served, honored, and obeyed Yahweh would inherit their tribal lands within the nation. 
he would ensure that that happened. But there is a long-term fulfillment of this passage also. This refers to the fulfillment uh, to the faithful remnant of Jews who go into the millennial kingdom and inherit the, their promised land again. And then there is the application for we believers who will enter into the eternal state in which there will be new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We will realize the fullness of that promise, the fulfillment of that promise, in that we will inherit the new earth. You'll notice that David continues to repeat this same idea throughout the rest of the chapter. Verse 11, the humble will inherit the land. Verse 22, those blessed by him will inherit the land. Verse 29, the righteous will inherit the land. So there is a promise for those who are God's children, they who are the ones who trust and obey him, who are humble, blessed, and righteous, that we will inherit the land in the future eternal kingdom. So don't think that Psalm 37 is promising you a bunch of real estate here on this earth if you just love and trust and obey the Lord. He might do that. Uh, he has done such for some Christians. Uh, but by and large, most Christians in our world are poor or middle class people who might possibly own a home <coughs> and some portion of land that goes with it. But very few believers are exceptionally wealthy. After all, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. But look for a moment at verses 18 and 19 here in Psalm 37. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil, and in the days of famine they will have abundance. And then verse 25. I have been young, and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. Now, is this a promise that no Christian will ever go hungry? No. But it is saying that David had never seen God abandon his righteous children. He will provide for them even in difficult times. Perhaps they won't have as much as they would in other times, but God will never abandon those who are righteous, even though they're going through difficult times. God will be faithful to his promise to provide for those who are righteous and obedient to him. Do you remember the story of Elijah by the brook? Let's look at it for a couple of moments. 1 Kings 17. 1 Kings 17. Ahab had become king. He married Jezebel, and together they implemented Baal worship in Israel. In fact, 1 Kings 16.33 tells us that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So it was a very bad time. <clears throat> and into that mess walks Elijah the Tishbite who tells Ahab, verse 1 of chapter 17, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there will be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. In other words, <clears throat> God says 
That's it for the provision of Israel. No rain, no crops. No crops, no food. No food means famine. But then God tells Elijah to go hide out by the brook Cherith, east of Jordan, and God promises him that it shall be that you will drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. Now, some of us would probably, if we were Elijah, we would hear that and go, huh? Uh, you're telling me that a bunch of scavenger birds are going to bring me food rather than eating it themselves? Nah, I'm not buying that. I'll go find my own source of food. <clears throat> but Elijah trusted God, and he obeyed him. And verses 5 and 6 say, So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and lived by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, bread and meat in the evening, and he would drink from the brook. So God provided for Elijah just like he promised. But later on, the brook dried up. And God sent Elijah down to Zarephath, to the house of a widow and her son, who were on the verge of starvation. They had only enough food left for one meal. But listen to what Elijah says to this lady, verse 13. Then Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go, do as you have said. <coughs> but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me and afterward you may make one for yourself and for your son for thus says the Lord God of Israel <coughs> the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth so basically <coughs> Elijah says to her I want you to make a meal for me first, and then you can have some, because God has promised to provide unlimited flour and oil until he sends rain on the earth again. Once again, think about the faith of this widow woman. She believed Elijah, despite the humanly perceivable evidence. I mean, who ever heard of such a thing? Uh, but verses 15 and 16 tell us. <clears throat> so she went and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through Elijah. What we see here is God bringing punishment upon those who were unrighteous and unfaithful, but being faithful to his promise to provide for his righteous children who were a remnant among that unrighteous nation. He did as he said he would. Why? Because God was bound by his promise to his people that those who trust in the Lord and are righteous will be fed. I believe that there are sometimes we forget that God is concerned for our physical provision. God feeds his own. Over in Luke 18, verses 28 and 30, we're told that Peter said, you know, Lord, behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he, Jesus, said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children 
for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. It is God who provides the homes we live in and a family of fellow believers both in this life and the age uh, to come we receive eternal life. <coughs> but God is not bound to do such for those who do not trust and obey him. He may in his gracious and sovereign choice feed the unrighteous, but he's not bound to do that. And someday all of those who are wicked will go hungry over in Luke 6, where Jesus is giving the version of the Beatitudes that are found in that gospel. He says in verse 25, Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. God is bound only to the physical provision of those who are his own children. Psalm 34, 9 and 10 says, O fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. They're not going to go hungry. That's a wonderful, exciting promise from God. So God then, I think, makes it abundantly clear in the scripture that he is committed to the care of his people. You say, Bruce, you're talking about Old Testament principles. No, I'm not. Look at, Luke, look at Matthew 7, where we've been studying, and, and look at, let's begin with verse 7. <clears throat> what does it say? Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Now, people read that, and they usually equate it with spiritual things. In fact, people yank it out of its context all the time and use it to illustrate someone coming to Christ for salvation. Now, I don't deny that there is a spiritual aspect to this, and we'll see that when we get to this passage in our study of Matthew. But for now, let's continue on. Look what it says in verse 8. Keep it in its context. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you? Who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or when he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? What are the illustrations that Jesus uses there of good things? It's bread and meat. The point is that God is concerned with giving the very basics of life to his people, just as a father would to his own children. And that follows right on the heel of Jesus' instruction in chapter 6, verses 25 to 34, about trusting God and not worrying about him providing for your basic needs. <clears throat> it's a marvelous text. Back in 1995, when I was about to lose my job as a police captain, uh, as our department was absorbed into the sheriff's office, and my pay was going to be cut by 30%, uh, that passage became one of the most dear passages of Scripture to me. Uh, we don't need to be worrying about what we will eat or what we will drink or what we will wear. God is going to take care of this. We need to first seek his kingdom and everything else will find its rightful place. And that's what he did for me. 
and I know he'll do the same thing for you. Now, there have been times when food and shelter and clothing have come as a supernatural act of God, but usually God meets the needs of his people through other people. That's what the body of Christ is all about. Believers are to have such a high view of the value of their fellow believers that they not only seek to meet their own needs, but the needs of others. In James 2, 15 and 16, <clears throat> it says, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? In other words, if your only response is, my friend, I, I hope that the Lord meets your needs, then it's questionable whether you're truly regenerated. And in 1 John 3, 17, it says, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? In other words, it's, it's very doubtful that you're even a real believer. It's almost the innate response of one who knows God that he supplies the needs of others. And so when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, what are we saying? We're trusting God as the provider to supply all the physical needs of our lives. And we're affirming that because we are his children and because we're walking in righteousness and walking in obedience and walking in a willing submission to his will, that we know that he will take care of all of those things. And we lift up our hearts in gratitude while setting our affections on things above. So, what is it that we seek as his provision? Bread. What is our petition? Give. Who are the people who ask for his provision? Believers. And then we finally come to the period of time. The period of time. What does Jesus say? Give us how often? This day, our daily bread. <clears throat> the word translated daily there is extremely rare in Greek. In fact, it's found only twice in the scriptures. Here and in Luke 11.3 in Luke's version of the model prayer. It's found nowhere else in Greek literature other than text which are discussing this prayer. Uh, it's an adjective describing the bread. <clears throat> if you pray this prayer in the morning, you would be asking for the bread for the day that you're in. If you pray it at night, you're asking for bread for the next day. Uh, this is a simple expression that ask God to provide enough for one day at a time. Uh, it stresses the contentment that comes when we live with a day-to-day -day dependence upon God and don't worry about the future. What did Jesus say in Luke 6, and Matthew 6.34? So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. If you haven't figured this out yet, let me tell you something. Most Christians who worry, worry about what hasn't happened. Um, they worry about a health issue or a financial issue or how they're going to get enough of whatever they might need. 
Why do they do that? Because they're not certain that God's going to provide for their needs as he's promised to do. That's doubting his word. That doesn't mean you don't save money and, and just live on the edge of bankruptcy all the time. I'm not saying that. Proverbs 6.6 6 says you're to be like the ant that, plant, that plans and stores up for the future. So this doesn't mean that you don't plan, but it does mean that you're content to trust God to meet your need in the future. Uh, we say, oh, what will I do if such and such happens? Or what if this other thing happens? And when we do that, we're doubting God's promises and we're not trusting him for his daily provision for us. Prayer then focuses on God as the one who provides. It acknowledges that he is the provider of all of our physical needs. And it teaches us to live one day at a time in the confidence that he will meet those needs. So this is a great little petition. Uh, I trust that as we pray every day, we will pray in confidence that we can focus on the spiritual levels because God is graciously caring for the physical. Don't let your thought patterns get to the get it to the level that you're only concerned about the physical. Don't lose your joy and your opportunity to minister by getting all wrapped up in the mundane. Uh, set your affections on things above. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you, he says in verse 33. So that, that brings us to the end of, of verse 11. Before we move on, are there any comments or questions regarding this little petition of give us this day our daily bread? Okay, I assume that you all know it. Let's look at verse 12. <clears throat> we will get started on this. It says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Certainly, I think you would agree with me that the most essential and the most blessed and the most difficult thing that God ever did was to provide man with the forgiveness of sin. It's the most essential because it keeps us from eternal hell and gives us joy even in this life. It's the most blessed because it introduces us into a fellowship with God that goes on forever. And if you can say that anything is difficult for God, I'm speaking in human terms now, the forgiveness of sin was the most difficult thing that God ever did because it required the Son of God to condescend from glory to become a man, die on a cross, be forsaken by the Father, and endure the wrath of God being poured out on him to pay the price for unworthy sinners. So the most essential, the most blessed, and the most difficult thing is the forgiveness of sin. It is the greatest need of the human heart. Uh, sin has a twofold effect, one future and one present. The future effect is that it damns men forever. Uh, the, its present effect is that it robs men of the fullness of life by bringing to bear upon his conscience an unrelieved and unrelenting guilt. And so as we face the problem of sin, we face the fact 
that sin brings immediate consequences, guilt and the loss of peace, joy, and meaning in life, and the future consequence of eternal damnation. So then sin is undoubtedly the major problem for which there is a need for a solution in the life of man. Psychiatrist William Sadler said, a clear conscience is the greatest step towards barricading the mind against neuroticism. Uh, in his book, Confess Your Sins, John Stott quotes the head of a large British hospital as saying, quote, I could dismiss half my patients tomorrow if they could be assured of forgiveness, end quote. Forgiveness is man's deepest need, both now and in the future for, for health now and for heaven later. So it's the first petition related to man's soul here in this prayer. The first three petitions, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, relate to God. The last three petitions relate to man. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The first of the last three is for physical sustenance, but the last two are for spiritual sustenance because that's so much more important. Uh, but the physical is necessary because we can't live without, we can't live out spiritual principles unless we're alive physically. So first our physical needs are met in verse 11, and then we come to the spiritual. The first and most basic request on the part of inner man is for the forgiveness of sin. That is man's deepest spiritual need. This is where God and man must meet. Before God can ever lead us away from temptation, before God can ever deliver us from evil, we must have a relationship with him which is possible only when our sins are forgiven. Why? Because God is a holy God whose eyes are too pure to approve evil and he cannot look on wickedness with favor. According to Habakkuk 1.13, Isaiah tells us that the seraphim cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And so there is no way that an absolutely holy God can possibly entertain in his presence a relationship with unholy, ungodly, sinful men. If we are to have any relationship with God, if there's any spiritual thing to be gained, it begins with a petition for forgiveness. And you will note Notice that in verse 12, forgive is mentioned twice. In verse 14, forgive is mentioned twice. In verse 15, forgive is mentioned twice. Six times it is mentioned, so we see the thrust and the theme of Jesus' words in this closing section of this model prayer, namely, the forgiveness of sins. Now, as we go through this verse, I want to give you four points and five words that Scripture uses to describe sin. I'm going to begin with the five words and get them out of the way, and then we'll move on through the verse. And to do that, I want you to notice the word debts. Forgive us our debts. And in verse 14 and 15, Jesus uses the word transgressions. Now, I say this to point out that there are five words in the New Testament for sin. 
we're going to do a little Greek word study here. I'm going to go through it fairly quickly. Uh, please don't be overwhelmed by it. Uh, if it's over your head, let it soar by. Uh, but hopefully you will find this a little bit enlightening. The first word and the most common word in Scripture for sin uh, is hamartia. Hamartia right here. Uh, this word, whether in its noun form or verbal form, appears 270 times in the New Testament. Uh, and the basic idea behind it is to miss the mark. It's an archer's word. Uh, you shoot the arrow and miss the target. And generally the idea is you miss because the target is so far removed from you that your arrow falls short. Uh, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No matter how far you try to shoot it, it never quite gets there. Uh, you know, some people's arrows go further than others, but nobody gets there. It's kind of like jumping off of Pier 60 on Clearwater Beach in an effort to reach Cancun, Mexico. Um, all of us could try it, but we would all fall far short. Even the world's best Olympic long jumpers couldn't do it. Uh, the Olympic long jump record is 29 feet, two and a quarter inches that's far shorter than the 533 miles from Clearwater to Cancun, Mexico. Uh, yes, some of us would jump further than others, but no one would land in Cancun. Uh, but in the case of trying to reach God's standard of holiness, what's the mark that we're reaching for? Perfection. Yeah. Matthew 5:48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God's standard is perfect holiness, perfect righteousness, perfect sinliness. When you're like God, you hit the mark. And when you're not, you don't. Welcome to the club of those who miss the mark. Uh, we all miss the mark. So hemartia is the first word for sin. The second word is paraptoma. Paraptoma. Right here. Uh, this word is used 19 times in the New Testament, and it's often translated as trespass or transgression. It's the word used in verses 14 and 15. Uh, it carries the idea of slipping or falling that results more from carelessness than from intentional disobedience. The third word is parabasis. Parabasis down here. I don't know if all of you can see that or not. Let me move this. Parabasis. Uh, it's used seven times in the New Testament. It means to step over the boundary, to step across the line. Uh, but the difference here is that you know what the boundary is, but you violate it anyway. For example, Paul used this word three times in Romans to refer to the Jews breaking God's law. Romans 2.23, you who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? <coughs> they knew God's law. They knew where his boundary was, but they chose to step over and break his law. The word describes sin, which is more intentional than hemartia and uh, 
per, uh, per optima. So when you know what God's boundaries are, yet you choose to violate them, it is sin. Sin is stepping across the line, which is drawn between right and wrong. It is doing what is a forbidden thing in thought, word, or act. The fourth word is onomia. Onomia. This word is used 15 times in the New Testament. It's based on the Greek word for law, namas. Uh, so it means lawlessness. Uh, it is a, this is a flagrant breaking of God's law, a rebellion against God. 1 John 3, 4 uses this word to define and clarify hemartia. Uh, it says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. It's used in Matthew 7, 23, where all the unbelievers at the final judgment are pleading that they served Christ and they did all kinds of works in his name. And he will say to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And finally, we come to the word that Jesus uses in verse 12. Uh, it is the word ophelima. Ophelima. Uh, it, it means debt. Uh, this word is only used here and in Romans 4.4 as a noun, but its verb form is found 35 times in Scripture. It's a word that is not that familiar to us in terms of sin, but the verb form is very instructive for us because it means to owe a debt, to be obligated. And most of the time that it's used, it refers not to a money debt, but to a moral debt. Uh, when you sin, in fact, it's used five times to refer to a money debt, the other 30 times in Scripture to a moral debt. So the idea is that sin is a debt. When you sin, you owe a debt to God as a consequence for your sin. You owe that debt. You violated his holiness. You owe him for that. It's kind of like when my boys were young. I would tell them, one of them more so than the other, if you do that, you're going to get two whacks. And if you do it again, you're going to get four whacks. And there were times they stacked up a debt that had to be paid. In a sense, that's what God is saying. Our sin becomes a debt. When you violate God's holiness, the record is kept of your debt. Now, as you know from previous lessons, Jesus and the rest of the Jewish society commonly spoke Aramaic. And most common word for sin in Aramaic was koba, which means debt. They use that term because to a Jew, the primary obligation in life was to obey God. And when you disobeyed God, you owed him a debt for your disobedience. And so the Jews thought in terms of that. I'm sure that when Jesus spoke this model prayer, since he spoke Aramaic, he probably used the word koba. Now, when you go to Luke and you read about the model prayer, Luke doesn't say, forgive us our debts. Uh, he says, 
forgive us our trespasses or our sins, because Luke wrote in a much more formal and classical manner. His Greek skills were superb, and he was writing, if you remember, to another Greek official, Theophilus. So he used the word hemartia because that word communicated what Jesus was saying to Luke's Greek-speaking audience, his Greek-reading audience. But here, Matthew, who's writing for a Jewish audience with a Jewish orientation, just zeroes in on this concept of debt because he knows his Jewish audience would pick up on that. So we owe a debt. Our sin is a debt to God. And so then all five words sum up what classifies and categorizes sin. Okay? Any questions about that before we move on? What was two again? What do you mean two? Number two. This word right here? Yes, sir. Paroptima. This is, this is more of a... It's a violation, but it's an ins it's an unintentional sin. Yeah, a slip. Yeah. Okay. Now, let's let's turn to the four points about this verse, and we won't finish it. But let me start with the problem. The problem is that sin separates man from God. That obviously makes it man's greatest problem. Uh, sin makes men guilty, brings judgment. It's pretty basic. I think all of us who are Christians know that to be true. Sin makes us guilty, brings judgment. Uh, sin dominates the mind and the heart of man. Uh, it contaminated every human being. It's the degenerative power that makes man susceptible to disease and illness and every conceivable form of evil and unhappiness, both temporal and eternal. The ultimate effects of sin are what? Death, damnation, uh, and the present effects are misery and uh, dissatisfaction and guilt. Uh, sin is the common denominator of every crime, every theft, every lie, every murder, immorality, sickness, pain, sorrow of mankind. It is the moral and spiritual disease for which man has no cure. That's the human dilemma. Man is a sinner. God is holy. And therefore, sinful man cannot on his own have a relationship with God. We break his laws, we become guilty, and then because we're guilty, Romans 6.23 says, says that the wages of sin is death. So man is a sinner because he is lawless. He breaks God's law. In the breaking of God's laws, he becomes guilty, and judgment for guilt is death. So sin makes us guilty and brings judgment. All men across the face of the earth stand in judgment before God for their sin. Now understand that this prayer is for believers. And so the sin debt for which we are to pray is the sin of our lives, which has broken our fellowship relationship with God. When we have unconfessed sin in our lives, we have no fellowship with God and we need to confess it to, it, to him in order to receive his forgiveness and restore our communion with him. But the point is still the same. Man's greatest need is the forgiveness of sin, whether to start a relationship with God 
or to restore a relationship with God. And then that brings us to the next point, which is the provision. Now, let me see. That's a short one. Let's cover it quickly and we'll stop. Because man's greatest problem is sin is, and the greatest need is forgiveness. And that's offered by God on the basis of what? Christ's death. Yeah. Uh, he, God is a holy God. And scripture says he will by no means clear the guilty. Uh, every man and woman on earth stands guilty before God and in his holy righteous justice he must punish sin. But God is also an infinitely merciful, loving, and forgiving God. So he made the provision for forgiveness by pouring out his righteous judgment on sin upon his own son. Christ took upon himself the sin of those who God has chosen before time in eternity past and died in their place. Forgiveness then is offered by God on the basis of Christ's death. And then we will next time pick up with the plea. The third point is that confession of sin is necessary for that forgiveness to be received from God. And we will look at uh, exactly what we're, we will differentiate between the forgiveness that unbelievers need and the forgiveness that we as believers need. Any comments or questions before we close? <clears throat> yes. Is that the word anomia? Is that Anomia? Yeah. Is that the root word for that term antinomianism? Uh, yeah. Would you agree, Frank? It is? Antinomianism? Antinomianism means against the law versus yeah. This is lawless. lawless. Okay. Yeah. So you have a law that's against that's antinomian. This says there's no law. Yeah. So I thought antinomianism was used in the in the context of I heard this from Mark Lloyd Jones where you say, Well, I don't have to follow any I'm just gonna 